Welcome to King of Glory Lutheran Church Education Podcast. We are a Christian community of faith located in Williamsburg, Virginia. For more information, please visit us on the web at kogva.org. Talk about what the church teaches. We're going to look at the Bible a lot. Um, We're going to talk about the end times. We're going to talk about some uh, wonderful words that help us understand uh, this whole... He's here. Good to see you. Uh, Wait, what time do we start? Quarter till. Oh! I thought it was at 11. No. This is to accommodate people. Uh, and we thought the rapture would take Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have to have the exactly correct view about, view about free will Sign and rapture. <laughs> and just you. Check your reverence. <laughs> On your handout and also on the screen, let's pray. God in all grace, we give you thanks because by his death our Savior Jesus Christ destroyed the power of death. And by his resurrection, he will open the kingdom of heaven to all believers. And it is certain that because he lives, we shall live also. And that neither death nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, who will be able to separate us from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord, who lives and reigns with you with the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And we sing. Um, we, we sang this twice in the early class, and both times I had a bad pitch. Um, so I, um, somebody got a pitch for us? Okay. Chuck. Oh, there he is. Yeah. 
So I was saying, um, you all thought you were a tough class, so Wednesday I taught my first class of the semester at William & Mary. And I was just trying to establish some very basic stuff, like, we all know we're in a classroom, right? And the whole class said, no, wait, we don't even know that we're in a classroom. So that's what I was doing with, uh, Does everybody have a handout? So, just to let you know where we're going, today we're going to take a look at the end times, all of the different ideas and theories based on scripture that Christians have come up with uh, going way back to early church fathers in terms of what the times before the end come is going to be like. Next week, uh, we're going to be dealing with um, Pascal's Wager, and this book, I think I brought it with me, uh, uh, Michael wrote his book, Pascal's Wager, and in terms of apologetics, uh, in, well, why don't you give a brief introduction to this argument? Oh, well, I'll do it next week. Okay, this, yeah. anyway, uh, this we will be presenting the case why it is important for Christians to be aggressively persuasive about the afterlife. Destination because it matters. Destination because it matters. It really, really does. And this, this book, um, especially for children and grandchildren who may be more of a skeptical, uh, academic, politically correct, Mindset. This book is something that they need to read. They really, really do. And we're going to be getting into that argument. Then the, the fifth class will be talking about heaven. What do, we, what do we believe and teach about the afterlife? What about near-death experiences? And what about those things um, that uh, in popular mythology and in sermons, how much of what we preach about during funeral service actually has basis in the Bible. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at that. And then, of course, the final class uh, will be based on those who are gathering with Philip and myself at Panera Bread the Monday after the fifth class in order to put together a presentation that will kind of wrap things up and answer um, maybe some questions or identify issues for the study, or maybe even for future Bible studies. Okay, that's where we're at. What do we believe? Um, I thought it would be important for us to review uh, the early church in terms of its creeds. The ecumenical creeds are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. Um, the Apostles' Creed, probably the first extent, existent manuscript of that comes around 175 AD. Uh, and it, uh, as you take a look at the creed, it was trying to answer the question, uh, was Jesus um, a, a human being? Um, Nicene Creed, about 350 AD. And as you look at that creed again, big, long, uh, second article has to do with was Jesus really God? Um, and then the Athanasian Creed, of course, um, fifth century sometime, 
where the argument was, what is the Trinity? How can we explain that? So here on the handout, I have just excerpted a couple things from the early church, which is the creeds. Uh, Apostles' Creed, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of, fa of the Father. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. Does it leave some questions unanswered? Yeah, it really does. I'm like, whoa, is that all, is that all the creeds have to see? Um, Let's move then to the uh, 16th century Lutheran confessions. The Lutheran confessions um, are found in the Book of Concord. And for your information, the Lutheran confessions contain the three ecumenical creeds. The Apostles, the Nicene, Athanasian, part of our confessional stance. And then come um, documents that were written in the 16th century um, from... Um, Luther's Small Catechism, probably dating from 1527, Luther's Large Catechism, the uh, Augsburg Confession, Defensive Augsburg Confession, formula of Con the Formula of Concord. This is what the Augsburg Confession says. Article 17 of Christ's Return to Judgment. They also teach that at the consummation of the world, Christ will appear for judgment and will raise up all the dead. He will give you godly and elect eternal life and everlasting joys, but ungodly men and the devils he will condemn to be tormented without end. The question is, who who are the they? Um, and the they are um, the princes who signed off on the Augsburg Confession, along with those people, um, Luther and, and his fellow theologians who put together the Augsburg Confession as a, a way to provide arguments uh, with, the, with the Catholic Church in terms of what they believed about specific things. But the Augsburg Confession was very conciliatory. It really attempted to, to bridge the gap that had widened uh, between Lutheran's followers and the Catholic Church. Uh, but they took a stance. They condemned Anabaptists who think that there will be an end to the punishments of condemned men and devils. If you were here at the first class, you heard echoes of that. They condemn also others who are now spreading certain Jewish opinions that before the resurrection of the dead, the godly shall take possession of the kingdom of the world, the ungodly being everywhere suppressed. Um, and then um, moving ahead, again the Book of Concord, uh, the Formula of Concord, uh, this is an example of how the early confessors dealt with controversy. And this was Article 9 in the Formula of Concord, 1580. Luther's dead over 30 years. Um, the church is really struggling to define itself in terms of what it believes, what it teaches. Uh, and when it came to Christ's descent into hell, it's instructive in terms of how on certain things the Lutherans said, you know, on certain things we're just not going to engage. This is one of them. It has also been disputed among some theologians who have subscribed to the Augsburg Confession concerning this article. When and in what manner the Lord Christ, according to our simple Christian faith, descended to hell. 
whether this was done before or after his death. But since this article, as also proceeding, cannot be comprehended by the senses or by our reason, but must be grasped by faith alone, it is our unanimous opinion that there should be no disputation concerning it, but that it should be believed and taught only in the simplest manner according as Dr. Luther. For it is sufficient that we know that Christ descended into hell, destroyed hell for all believers, and delivered them from the power of death and the devil, from eternal condemnation <coughs> and the jaws of hell. But how this occurred, we should not curiously investigate, but reserve until the other world, where not only this point, this mystery, but also still others will be revealed, which we here simply believe and cannot comprehend with our blind reason. Um, and, that, and that is to, um, to be reminded of Luther's infamous statement that philosophy was the horror of reason, um, because he uh, really had great questions <coughs> like people who tried to go beyond mystery in terms of explaining it. Um, and this is also, uh, that phrase um, is also contradictory to Luther's own method of reason. Um, his great stance, here I stand, I can do no other, he said that unless convinced by reason and scripture, he could do no other. So he really, he was a deep thinker. He struggled with, um, with thought, but when it came to certain things, he stopped. Um, so, uh, at the very bottom of the page, I want you to pay careful attention to the footnote. In terms of what the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod believes about the end times, I recommend very, very highly the pamphlet, The End Times, A Study on Eschatology and Millennialism, a report of the Commission of Theology and Church Relations of Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. If you're interested in this, I encourage you to go to the website, go to the, uh, the Commission of Theology and Church Relations, and have them, I think it's available electronically, or they'll send you a copy of this particular booklet. On the very back page of your handout, the glossary, this comes from that booklet, and we're going to read through that. Uh, some feedback from the early class was that people had heard these terms but had never had any clear explanation of them or had something in their hands, so they felt that this was very helpful. So we're going to work through this. Alphabetically, amillennialism. The view that there will be no thousand years visible earthly kingdom or millennium. This view is better termed realized millennialism since it teaches that the symbolically understood thousand year of Revelation 20 began at Christ's first advent. Flip that page over and you'll see Appendix 1, Diagram of Millennial Views. You go to the bottom of the page, D, A Millennialism. If you want to know where the Lutheran Church is, most mainline Protestant denominations, Episcopalian and Roman Catholics, they are all amillennialists. 
The church age began at Christ's advent. Birthday of the church is Pentecost. Age of the church. And then the thousand years is interpreted as being symbolically during the age of the church. Uh, Satan's little season um, in which uh, there's going to be increasing persecution of Christians. Um, then the universal resurrection, rapture, universal judgment, and then new heavens and the new earth. That's a millennialist. Let's go back to the, because we need to do some glossary work before we look at the other views. Armageddon, you've heard about, probably have heard about that, refers to the battle mentioned in Revelation chapter 16, 16, and that is part of, of dispensationalist millennialist opinion. Apocalyptic literature, derived from the Greek word apocalypsis, uncovering a revelation. This type of literature most notably found in Daniel and Revelation, also Mark chapter 13, uses highly symbolic imagery. Dispensationalism, also called dispensational premillennialism, this is a system of theology which divides history. If you can underscore divides history into periods of time or dispensations. Dispensation simply means periods of time. And for dispensational millennialists, they see there's seven um, dispensations um, at the end of which there is a time of judgment um, in which people will be judged in terms of where they survive the test or not. Um, Man is tested with respect to his obedience of it. All dispensationalists are premillennialists, but not all premillennialists are dispensationalists. Don't try to unwrap that. <laughs> Eschatology. Um, the, um, the hymns of the church, the hymns that we sing at the early service every week, some of the hymns that we sing at the um, 9.30 service uh, these old hymns, almost all of them, have a line or two that relates to eschatology. Um, every hymn that we sang at the early service this morning had lines that, um, that referred to the future. Um, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home with joy shall fill my heart, then shall I bow in humble adoration. Um, the second hymn, just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. Uh, the first communion hymn, and when from death I'm free, I'll sing on, and when from death I'm free, I'll sing on, and when from death I'm free, I'll sing on, and in eternity I'll sing on. Um, and then um, the closing hymn was crowned him with many crowns, which is all about um, that time of Christ's resurrection, Christ's triumph, the King of Glory that we celebrate here at this church. Um, millennium, derived from the Latin word thousand, um, millennialism teaches that there will be a thousand year visible kingdom of God on earth. It's also called kiliasm from the Greek word kilia, a thousand. Uh, I was introduced to that word kilia 
uh, Kilia, uh, from my father. Uh, my dad graduated from the uh, Missouri Synod Seminary in 1925, and he was at the seminary in the backwash of the Chiliastic controversy, which swept the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in the 19-teens. Um, and um, it led to the ouster of certain pastors and groups who, who were um, purporting uh, this kind of millennialism. It was made wildly popular by the Schofield Study Bible, um, which ironically was the study Bible that my dad carried for decades. This was his, but, but he, he never got into that part of that study Bible that um, supported the millennium, but that was, he, he saw a lot of good things in that, in that Schofield Bible, but the scope in the history of millennialism, that is um, the Bible that, that really made it wildly popular. Premillennialism is the view that um, Christ's second advent will occur before the millennium. Um, and then the rapture. This refers to the event described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 to 17. Also, somebody in the early class said, hey, what about the reference in Matthew where it talks about two people working um, and one is taken and the other is left? Um, and uh, that... Uh, that reference was left out, but that certainly is also another number for And remember, we do believe in the rapture, but at the second coming, not as um, where there's an escape uh, for believers so that they avoid the tribulation. Tribulation. Brad, you want to talk a little bit about your history with that, please? <clears throat> well, I did not grow up in the Lutheran church. I grew up in the Pentecostal church. And it was taught from a young age, pretty much everything uh, as a dispensational, uh, whatever that word is, that there was going to be a seven year of tribulation. The Antichrist will come, will control the earth, and there will be seven years that Christians will go through tribulation. The only question we ever had was, is the rapture going to come before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation? That was the only discussion that we ever had. Uh, at, at the end of the tribulation, there would be a, a battle of Armageddon, uh, and then the judgment, and then the millennium, and so yeah. Okay, thanks Brad. Um, Brad shared that with me, and I thought it would be interesting to hear uh, from him. Um, appendix 1 again. Uh, dispensational premillennialism. Here are the seven dispensations. Um, and um, it's, it's complicated. But again, if, if we refer to the analogy that we used, I think it was last week, um, that if you, based on scripture, um, begin to think a certain way, um, and the analogy is a drum, and if you want to beat that drum, the scripture is going to give you many drumsticks to beat whatever that drum is, and this is certainly um, an occasion for that. Um, that these Christians are very, very serious about this, so we should not make fun of them or in any way disparage them, because they... This is their faith and their belief. 
Um, and so uh, they have got that uh, carefully mapped out chronologically in terms of what's going to happen. Uh, the thing is that it has certain political ramifications, uh, especially with regards to Jerusalem, the building of the Third Temple, mm-hmm. and the State of Israel, and evangelical Christians here in the United States. Um, Vice President Pence is one of those who, uh, in his private um, Pentecostal beliefs, is very much part of that. He's a former Roman Catholic, of course, and has become a firm believer that the third, um, the third temple and the survival and the step is part of his whole worldview. World um, lesser um, elaboration is the historic premillennialism and then post-millennialism. So, um, so in terms of what this, this, how we interpret that, that's where it becomes really important that we take a look at the problem of the types of languages used by the writers of the Bible. Uh, not all are to be read literally. So if you can go to um, the second page, number five, uh, we took a look at the glossary. What does the Bible say? So hermeneutics. Whenever anybody reads the Bible, they are reading it with a certain set of presuppositions. They're looking at it from a particular perspective. Um, And um, we as Lutherans, somewhat arrogantly, um, say that we have the lens by which we interpret Scripture correctly. (laughs) Other people may have lenses that interpret scripture and distorts the real meaning of scripture. And I say that in all humility um, because I have uh, in, in my life I've gotten to know Pentecostal Christians, Assembly of God Christians, Roman Catholic Christians, and uh, Presbyterian Christians, Presbyterian Christians, and all these people take scripture very seriously. They really, really do. And that's why I say, Lutherans somewhat arrogantly say, you know, you know, we have the, the, the lenses that really clarify it, and we say that that one lens is law, and the other lens is gospel. So, if you approach scripture from that standpoint, and you go from the fact that we, that we follow Luther's dictum that the Bible is the cradle of Christ, Old Testament, New Testament, and you read it from that perspective, you'll become like me. You know, where, where, because I teach that. Like this coming Wednesday at the new members class, I'll be teaching about the Bible. And I will unashamedly talk about how we as Lutherans interpret Scripture from law and gospel, and I will make that case not arrogantly, but I hope humbly, demonstrating how our sermons on Sunday morning, um, how our teaching um, is built, and our interpretation of scripture and Bible study is done from that particular perspective, law and gospel. The reason that helps is because it 
it rules out a lot of the controversy that's going to go with various interpretations. Um, and that is why Luther, in his, his uh, controversial prologues, prefaces to the books of the New Testament, and if you're interested in really reading something that will open up your eyes in terms of how Luther saw the scripture, find, you can find it on the, on the web, his prefaces to the New Testament. In those prefaces, he makes it very, very clear his own markers of evaluation on how he evaluates scripture, whether or not they are worth spending time in, or whether, whether or not they are not worth spending much time in. Uh, that's where you get this infamous statement that the book of James is a book of straw, and really you shouldn't spend much time with it. Same thing with Revelation. Um, he says that there's so much stuff in there, um, and what he focuses on is the Gospel of John, Galatians, Romans, those is where, guess what? Law and Gospel are, are really spelled out. Uh, because he felt that unless Scripture really proclaimed Christ without getting people hung up in works righteousness, which he thought James did, you really need to stay away from those things that would distract you from the fact that it is Christ. Um, over against those things that might distract you and make you believe that uh, you have some, uh, some way of justifying yourself before God. So, that's the problem. Uh, not all scripture is to be read literally. Most of the scriptures that are used for the various theories use scripture that are either poetic, major and minor prophets, apocalyptic, example, Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation, remember the drum? Take an idea, one verse, make it your drum, you'll find drumsticks, all kinds to beat that drum with, especially if you use poetic or apocalyptic literature as your sticks. The pro many of the prophets are written in poetry, figuratively and picturesque. Um, maybe an overstated example, Amos 9.13, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Um, in the Psalms, the mountains will dance like um, calves. Um, apocalyptic literature in Daniel and Revelation, and here are some examples. In Revelation chapter 6, Five horsemen, chapter 9, locusts, chapter 13, beast, chapter 20, Satan bound in bottomless pit, and numbers, which were used symbolically. Revelations chapter 5, 6, the seven horns and seven eyes of Christ, chapter 7, chapter 14, the 144,000. That reminds you of who? The Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. yeah. And talk about a developed eschatology that's based on scripture that Jehovah's Witnesses have put it together. And their eschatology, based on this 145,000, um, motivate people to this day who are knocking on your door. Uh, Pastor Harmon went to the Wizards game on Monday. How many of you were at the Bible class uh, this week where he talked about the Jehovah's Witnesses outside the that were there. Yeah, I mean, these people are motivated because they they take seriously that destination because Amen. destination because Amen. it matters absolutely. Um, and I think we really need to be challenged in terms of how seriously do we take that. 
you know? Um, and, uh, and if you've been um, in, in the first class where we talked about these various views of hell, uh, you know that there's a lot of thinking out there that would kind of, ooh, 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 you know, let's not think about that too much or, or whatever. But um, in terms of scripture, um, scripture is clear. Um, this kind of literature uh, does not pretend to be speaking literally. The challenge is to determine what is the intended message and to understand that at times God has chosen to use symbolic language and figures of speech. Why? Why would God do that? Or why would God's people choose to do that? At times of persecution, when Revelation was written, the church was under huge persecution. And the book of Revelation and other apocalyptic literature at that time was the underground code language to provide the early Christians who were undergoing persecution one thing. It's a four-letter word. It starts with H and it ends with E. The word is hope. Absolutely. And that is why apocalyptic literature, again and again, in times of severe cataclysmic uh, historic times, um, World War One, World War Two. I mean, um, post-Civil War. The post-Civil War was horrible. In these times, um, these um, poetic and apocalyptic became a source of hope as people trying to read into them an interpretation that would give them hope in the situations that they were involved in. Uh, yeah. Next page. Yes? So would, would Luther say that the Bible then is not the divinely inspired Whoa! 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 <laughs> Pastor Beck, would you answer that for me, please? Nine, nine, nine! <laughs> how, can you say, how can you say some of it shouldn't be taken very seriously and call it the divine, divinely inspired? And that's the internal struggle that goes on within Lutheranism. Um, the um, the uh, a group of Lutherans that I have identified with um, <coughs> take um, a very gospel-centered perspective of Scripture, and we feel that we have that by right of the Lutheran confessions. But that certainly goes against those who feel that every word of Scripture is the divinely inspired, inerrant word of God in all words. So Luther's prefaces, and that's why Luther's prefaces have really not seen the light of day in certain Lutheran circles, because they, they, these are the words and writings of a man himself. His scholarship cannot be questioned. I mean, Luther knew scriptures. And, his, and again, his own personal experience of having that weight of guilt Pastor Harmon didn't refer to Luther, did he, this morning? I mean, he could have, in terms of getting rid of, you know, the, the guilt that he was carrying, trying to justify himself. That's why Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 became so important, because he was able to get rid of, to get rid of that baggage that he was carrying because of the gospel. And, and that's why when he read the New Testament, he was really taking a look what is going to encourage me in my faith, my singular focus on Christ and what he has done for me, and what is going to get me involved in speculation 
um, in controversy that goes nowhere or what's going to tempt me to fall back on works righteousness that somehow I can justify myself. Pastor Freire, can you add anything to this? (laughs) (laughs) The only thing I would say is he he didn't mean literally, right? I think we have to be careful using that word. You didn't say literally. Did I? You didn't. I didn't, know. No. So, in a sense that, do we know all the answers? No, we don't. And that's where scripture helps us to interpret scripture. Yes, I have an interpretation that helps me on that. Yes, it is written in divine inspiration. We don't always have divine interpretation. There you go. Well said. Pick up a textbook on quantum physics. It's correct, but you make sense of it. One one or two people here might. That's a slippery slope. (laughs) Whoa, yeah. I, I hope you don't hear me disparaging people who have different interpretations of Scripture. I really don't. Uh, it, it's part of the Lutheran confessional standpoint um, to call out people and say they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Even the word anathema was used in Lutheran confessions. Anathema, may, may they be cursed for their wrong beliefs. Um, but um, I, I think that needs to be understood as a product of the time that they were written in and in terms of the extraordinary struggles that were going on in the, in the Reformation period in order to define what was, what was important and what was not important. Yes? The Bible is a God-Jesus-inspired document, but it was still written by man. And that's and that's where the you know, we ought to have a Bible study just on biblical interpretation. Um, I think I have a perspective that maybe is more like exploration friendly than than what you're saying, Luther's myself. I would say if there's hard parts of the Bible, I still want to think about them and try to understand them. But I'm not. At the end of the day, I still. Say, I understand the gospel, I understand the basics, this isn't going to overturn that, but I can still, out of curiosity, want to understand the end times, or want to understand something that's harder. So, you you know, you explore it, but don't let it overturn what's more obvious or more central, I guess. Great, good. Okay, on on the uh, C... Uh, this is uh, 6C, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the ongoing question of how we relate the New Testament to the Old Testament. We really feel that the New Testament is the New Testament, uh, that in Jesus the Old Testament was fulfilled. Um, many people, some people, see that the, the prophecies in the Old Testament are still to be fulfilled, and that the whole thing, the building of the third temple and the things in Daniel, all that stuff, um, and so um, we, we believe that um, in Jesus Christ, um, God's people, the church, God's people, um, the, the Jewish people, became one person. And that from this one person then became the new creation, the new people of God, which includes all of us, Jews and Gentiles, those who are defined um, by their faith in Jesus Christ. 
So, um, primary example is Christ the new Israel. So, how will the new Israel manifest itself? Interesting how certain evangelical Christians have equated the restoration of Jerusalem, the building of the third temple in Jerusalem, to be necessary before the second coming of Christ. Um, dispensational millennialism. Um, here in this Missouri Senate document, I really need to, to um, pull this out. Those who teach uh, dispensational premillennialism, third line, affirm scripture as the inspired word of God. Their eschatology emphasizes the visible, personal return of Christ. They teach justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we can affirm all of those things. But, and it's a huge but, but aside that, their teaching contradicts the scriptures at many critical points and therefore seriously endangers the pure teaching of the gospel. And what that means, what that means is it's the gospel plus. See, I was raised in a home listening to a Lutheran pastor who preached the gospel plus. It wasn't just the gospel, but it was a, all, it was a lot of other things that I, uh, you don't go out on Saturday night. You prepare for worship on Saturday night. Um, and there was a whole list of other things, the gospel plus. Um, membership in fraternal organizations. Um, the gospel um, meant that if somebody died and wasn't a member of the church, especially if they committed suicide, you did not do the funeral and you did not allow them to be buried in the, the gospel plus. You know, that, that kind of hard core stuff. And that's what happens when, uh, when, when people start drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is what you've got to believe, otherwise you can't be part of us. Um, and Brad, w w did you have that sense that, that you guys were right when it came to this, or, or was it more open to other ideas? We were somewhat taught that liturgical churches were Christian because they worshiped the liturgy and not the Lord. You know, certain you could be. Yeah. Um, the, um, the Baptist church in Fairbanks, Alaska, who um, at the um, Iraq, uh, the 9-11 uh, after that, they, um, they got very involved, and on their sign it said, Nukem in the dark, shoot them when they glow. That was their response to 9-11 in terms of you know, what they felt our government should have been response to Iraq in terms of nukem until they blow shoot them in the dark. That's that's right. That's right there. Yeah. 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 Nukem nuke, nuke in the dark shoot them in the dark. What okay. Um, that's an example of the gospel plus. Okay. Um, the red heifer, uh, Numbers 19, 2 to 9, so believe that the second coming of Jesus cannot occur until the third temple is constructed which requires the appearance of a red heifer born in Israel. Clyde Lott, a cattle breeder, is attempting to systematically breed red heifers, exporting to Israel to establish a breeding line of red heifers 
in Israel in the hope that this will bring about the construction of the third temple. And, and it, we kind of chuckle at that, but these are serious people. I mean, these people really, really believe this. And it has to do with, with not, I think, not recognizing scripture in terms of the many different forms of languages and how these languages should be interpreted rather than taking them literally. Besides, uh, eschatology, you can underline uh, Matthew chapter 24. Uh, you've got a lot of stuff in Matthew 24. In, ter- in fact, in terms of the scriptures that you're going to see decided in the rest of this page and the next page, you're going to see Matthew 24 come up again and again and again. Uh, Matthew 25, uh, 31 to 46, uh, that's his second coming. Uh, the 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is about the resurrection, incredibly important when it comes to eschatology. And eschatology is anything that has to do with the end times, with our thinking about um, what's going to happen before Christ comes again and what happens, um, what we'll be dealing with on the fifth lesson of this uh, about heaven and the afterlife. What the signs are and what they are not. The signs do not signify events which will happen only in the future. Many were present at Jesus' times and continued to the present time. Even consider these references, uh, Matthew 24, 14, Matthew 1, 8. The expectation is that Christ may come again at any time, and therefore the signs are to be something that keeps us on alert, red alert, the signs. Um, and, the, and that's why apocalyptic literature, and that is so popular during very difficult times, during times of famine, during times of political unrest and, and conflict and war. Uh, the signs do not provide us a formula by which we can figure out when Christ returns. Uh, the Millerites. Um, uh, William Miller was a farmer in the 1830s who studied scripture and was able to put together a, um, a formula for when Christ was going to come again. He said it was going to come again sometime between 1843 and 1844, and he identified a date in October of 1844. And this is his formula. It's an amazing thing. If you go to the Seventh-day Adventist website, and I encourage you to do that. I really encourage you. First of all, when it comes to other Christians who are not Lutherans, Seventh-day Adventists are at the top of my list. I'll tell you why. Their homer hermeneutics on Scripture is the closest I've found to the hermeneutics of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And then your question is, why, why does the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod worship on Sunday rather than on Saturday? The reason is because we've been contaminated by the early church. That's why. But if we really went by scripture, we would be worshiping on Saturday. If, if you, again, following the hermeneutical principles of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, compared that Seventh-day Adventist, that's what we, that's what we would doing. Why do I, why are they at the top? What is the one group of people that break actuarial tables? It's the Seventh-day Adventists. You know, you can group everybody else 
But then there are the Seventh-day Adventists. Because their lifestyle. No. No alcohol. Right. No caffeine. Other dietary. We had um, we had a person here who was at Loma Linda. Uh, their medical center, if you're in that hospital, huge medical center in California, if you're in that hospital, you eat Seventh-day Adventist menu. Yeah. Uh, it's healthy. It's a healthy lifestyle. And it's proven in actuarial tables when it comes to that. But don't they stay away from doctors also? No, that's, no. No. that's, Christian, that's Christian scientists. Oh, no, they, they founded one of the first medical schools. Right. Um, they they, they uh, had a hospital, see, and, and still to this day. Um, they, so they talk about William Miller and this whole date, and they talk about it in terms of the great disappointment that they say in the website, of course, the end of the world didn't happen on this day. They talk about the great disappointment, but then they talk about how this man and the people that had gathered around the idea um, all over the world at that point, the, the word had spread, that these people continued to hold together because of their very unique eschatology. Um, the, the thing that they saved them is that um, William Miller had said, it's going to come sometime between 1843 and 1844, never pinned down an exact date. The date that is cited is a date that he one time get, put his mouth on, and that was clamped on. But And then there was Ellen G. White, Ellen G. White, W-H-I-T-E, who had the gift of prophecy, signed gifts. And uh, she, um, in her writings and her prophecies, provided the, the cohesion for the Seventh-day Adventists to go ahead and become the powerhouse that they are today. 20 million Seventh-day Adventists in the world today. Um, and that's from this little group that started uh, in a cornfield, in a wheat field in Kansas. Uh, simply because of the singular focus on biblical teaching and what they feel the Bible says about how we should eat and conduct ourselves. Okay. Um, um, I, I, I but decided. only 144,000 are going to make it. Is that right? That's Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Yes. Just for comparison, do you know how many Lutherans there are in the world? Yes, 80 million. Yeah. What's the Lutheran opinion on this 144,000? Yeah, we, we feel that it's a misinterpretation of Scripture. Um, it's taking one passage of Scripture and building a whole worldview about it. Yeah, so we don't need to do that. In Revelation, it kind of explains that these are evangelists yeah. working in the first and that's why, of tribulation. And that's why they hope by being evangelists and by clocking up conversions and been spending time on the road and ringing doorbells, they hope that they're by their sheer effort is going to be part of the 144,000. Okay, um, the signs that a reminder that. Christians should be in a state of perpetual watchfulness, um, and and that is something that we become complacent in, don't we? If we have good health and things are going well, we don't think about that. But if we get sick and somebody talks about cancer or a chronic disease, um, or suddenly we start thinking about end times, don't we? Yeah. 
so delightful because we don't know the day or the hour. And again and again, we hear about um, people are here one minute and they're gone the next um, because of an auto accident, because of a drug overdose. Uh, and the signs are not necessarily extraordinary or spectacular, the stuff of life on this planet. And then we talk about the individual signs. I want to point out this first one, the sign evidencing the grace of God, the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. Uh, several places. The second coming will not happen until the gospel is proclaimed everywhere. The thing is, uh, St. Paul in several places says it's already happened. Uh, if you take him literally. Um, so, uh, and that is why the Lutheran Hour, the Lutheran Hour motto is what? Bringing Christ to the nations. Bringing Christ to the nations, absolutely. Signs um, indicating divine judgment was Hurricane Katrina, God's judgment on decadent New Orleans. My mother-in-law lived in New Orleans. <laughs> my wife grew up in New Orleans we got married in New Orleans my first parish was in New Orleans yeah. no but that's, 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 that's the extremes that this kind of thinking can go to um, is uh, are earthquakes, wars, famines are they signs they are signs of a broken world where sin has had its way um we say nature, uh, earthquakes, tsunamis, the, the tsunami, uh, the, these incredible, incredible things. Uh, the um, signs indicating opposition to God, persecution of God's children, uh, the tribulation, um, that um, dispensational and millennialists talk about. There's scriptures that talk about how God's people are going to be punished and persecuted. The apostasy, phrases about that. Um, the book, Silence, by Susako Endo. I cannot recommend that highly enough. It's about Jesuits priests in the uh, 17th century who are forced to apostatize. There was a movie that came out, what, two years ago called Silence? Yes. Um, and that, that movie is, if you've not seen it, um, it really, have you seen it? Yeah. yeah. It really gets to the issue. At what point would I be willing to stand up and not apostatize, mm-hmm. go back in my Christian faith? Yeah. And this is something the blood of the martyrs, you know, uh, through the first centuries, you know, the blood of the martyrs was all about that, that they would not apostatize. Um, and then the Antichrist. Um, he appears in the church. He's not Satan or Satan's operative. He pretends to be God. A pseudo Christ is coming. Um, some churches, including Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, identify the office of the papacy as the Antichrist. That's still in our, um, um, not necessarily the person, but the office of the papacy. And, and of course, that you can make a case for that if you need to do that kind of thing. And then finally, the second advent of Christ. Um, Christ will visibly return in glory one day. Uh, different terms of parousia, his appearance, revelation, the day of the Lord, one event at the end of history. Um, subpoints, Christ will come visibly, all people will see him, scripture, Christ will come surrounded by the heavenly hosts, scriptures, 
the Christ coming, a bodily resurrection, all the dead will take place, scripture, Christ is returned, will judge all peoples, scriptures, and at his coming, a new heaven and new earth will be created. And um, so, we're out of time. Uh, I hope we have some time for questions and answers. Um, those of you who are monitors for the class, please take notes. Uh, we will be meeting, uh, Philip and I will be meeting with the monitors the Monday at, after the fifth class at Panera Bread. Um, and, and we're going to open it up to whoever would like to be uh, part of that. Um, the, and we're going to close by singing. Um, once again, who had the pitch? Okay. Thank you for listening to the King of Glory Church Education Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God and His people, grow in faith and love, and live through service and sharing. Visit us on the web at kogva.org.